Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the word of God. So praise the Lord. So I want to, uh, first of all, begin by thanking this church for your prayers for my health. Um, I want, I can, uh, yeah, let's just praise the Lord right now. I thank you, Jesus, because when I tell you I went through an ordeal, unlike anything in my life, it was a trial, uh, emotionally, physically, everything. And at times, I literally thought I was looking at death in the face, and I thought that this was it. And God had mercy, and thanks to modern medicine and the healing hand of God, I'm still with y'all for a while. So I came through that, and I have to be honest, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Because when I came through it, I had a greater love for my family and I thought, wow, they really do love me. So <laughs> that that was, I guess, worth that. So, um, so when I uh, this year, I gotta be honest with you. I I worked for hours on a topic, and I woke up this morning and I said, I just gotta be real with myself here. That's kind of boring, and I was. <laughs> I was not thrilled about it at all. It was a good one. It was wonderful, in, and it had scriptural integrity and all of that, but it was boring. So I said, i got to do something else, and I found something that I got excited about, and so that's what you're going to hear tonight. I got a little ADD in me, so i I got to have something that kind of charges my engines and gets me excited about it and excited about learning and studying the Word of God. So I think I have a message for you tonight, but along the way we're going to find some interesting things. So um, when we begin to examine the message of Christmas, we tend to see a theme in the Word of God that Jesus came for all people everywhere, of every background, man, woman, child, everyone. He came as someone who was on their level. So I want to look at that tonight, and I also want to highlight another aspect of the birth of Christ towards the end, and that is that Jesus came for reasons when he came as a child that transcended the norms the culture and the politics of his day. He went above and beyond to present a message that spoke to the hearts and the needs of the people. So there are many stories and myths uh, that are built up through the years about Christmas. And it seems like every time when I speak at Christmas, I'm trying to mess up your nativity scenes. And I, it's always something I bring up about that. And I, I honest, I don't have a vendetta out against against nativity scenes. Um, they're, they're wonderful, and they're not meant to be historically accurate. They're meant to be a symbol of the Christmas story and a teaching tool for kids. And so in that regard, they're wonderful. You're not supposed to look at them, and they whisk you back to first century Palestine. That's just not what they're for. So I, nativity scenes are great, so nothing I say today 
I don't think you want, I'm not trying to advocate you go home and throw those out or anything. So, all right. So, um, but many of our preconceived ideas about Christmas and the Christmas story have come about through the centuries of popular stories and things that were written. One of the biggest influences on the Christmas story was a book that was written about 200 AD, and it has the compelling name of the Proto-Evangelium of James. Now, this, when I read about this, it kind of reminded me of like those magazines in the checkout counter of the, the supermarket. It was just kind of like, it was popular literature, not that everybody read it, a lot of people did, but it was popular and that it appealed to a lot of people because it was this fanciful account of the birth of Christ. It was written by a non-Jew who knew very little about Palestine at the time of Jesus. But he, whoever this was that wrote it, concocted this story that was just enthralled people at the time and actually stuck in their minds. Now, the church leaders at the time, they tried to knock this in. This is not scriptural. It's not good. The theologians had a fit with it. Nobody really liked it that had any knowledge of scripture. But the people sure ate it up. So one of the ideas that this implanted was this idea that when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph were just getting to Bethlehem in time, and she's ready to pop, and they get there, and they hurry, and they find a place to get settled in, and they're there, and then uh, immediately she gives birth at night. Now, why at night? That's what this story was, but we have kind of caught on to that. We don't know when Jesus was born when you read the account. Could have been morning, afternoon, evening, uh, but we have grabbed a hold of it because we have songs like "Oh Holy Night" and "Silent Night." So in our minds, we see Jesus as being born at night. That's not necessarily a scriptural thing, but it is a tradition. So our traditional story of Christmas goes something like this: Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem. They were about to give birth, so they tried to find lodging. So they went up to one place that was in the inn. They knocked on the door, and a gruffy innkeeper says, we don't have any room here, but I got a place for you in the backyard that's a barn, and the animals are back there, and you can go there. So Mary and Joseph went back there, and they there was either like a cave or a barn or something of that nature, and Jesus was born in squalor and filth on the floor of a barn. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to encourage you a little bit that Jesus wasn't quite so mistreated as we can find out from history. So if we consider the culture of the time, as well as scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, we get a little different picture. And I, I have a vivid imagination, and I, I like to see what what would it be like if I could step back and be there to see that. And the more we understand about the culture of the time and what life was like, the more it feels like I'm standing there with the shepherds or the wise men and I'm adoring the baby Jesus, I feel like I'm there when I get a glimpse of what life was really like. Um, if Do you have the pictures up? There is uh, a book that I pulled a lot of this information from and you were uh, I highly recommend it. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Cultural Studies in the Gospels by Kenneth Bailey. And the author actually lived 
in the Holy Land for a number of years and the country surrounding Israel. So he has a real feel for um, Middle Eastern culture. So let me uh, do the first uh, earthquake of what your beliefs for Christmas is and propose to you that Jesus was born not in a cave, a stable, or a barn, but Jesus was born in a house. Um, for many years, uh, those who lived in the Holy Land understood clearly that from the culture that Jesus was born in a house. So let's read the Christmas story, and then let's, I'll, I'll kind of lead you through why we believe that is true. Luke 2, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So where the idea comes from that Jesus was born was born in a barn or a stable comes from this phrase that he was laid in a manger. However, uh, if I tell you that it is that we do believe it is true Jesus was born in a house and it definitely is scriptural that he was laid in a manger which was a feeding trough for animals then that logically lets us conclude what that there were animals inside the house absolutely there were animals inside the houses of those who lived in first century Palestine and for centuries before and even as a practice up until they say until the 20th century, you could find that uh, as a normal thing. Something you've never caught in scripture, I'm going to show you. Uh, the story in the Old Testament of Saul and the witch of Endor where he goes to try and get a word from the deceased, deceased Samuel. First Samuel 28, 24. Now the woman who was the witch of Endor, um, she had a fatted calf where... In the house, and she hastened to kill it. So then we have another story in Judges. Uh, we have a man named Jephthah in Judges 11, and he made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon in my hands, if you will allow me to conquer in your name, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Adam, Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. For years, I looked at that passage, and I said, this is the most cruel and heartless man, because he wants to make a sacrifice of whatever person walked outside of his house. But now if we understand that livestock and animals were kept inside houses routinely, when Jephthah returned home, he expected in the morning one of the animals to come out, and that was the animal he was going to sacrifice. But what happened, his daughter came out. And so um, there's speculation of whether that actually meant he was going to kill her as Abraham was uh, was 
uh, asked of, to do for Isaac. So we see this also in Jesus' response to the Pharisees when he healed a woman on the Sabbath. Jesus says to her, woman, you are freed or loosed. That word as he healed her actually meant literally untied or untethered like they would do with an animal. So Luke thirteen fifteen, the Lord answered those who were accusing him of desecrating the Sabbath. He said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan is bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. So no one interrupted Jesus to say, whoa, Jesus, we don't work on the Sabbath. I don't go out and tend my cattle on the Sabbath. He did not, no one had to interrupt him at that point because Jesus knew with the animals in their house, the first thing they do in the morning is to untie or untether those animals. And when he said to the woman, you are loosed, he said he was making a statement that she was liberated as you would lead the animals loose and let them loose. And so he says, you do that routinely even on the Sabbath. Then why can't I loose this woman? So that kind of gives some clarity to uh, that episode in Jesus' life. So let's look at a typical house. If you could advance that a couple. One more. There we go. Okay, so this is kind of a diagram of what a typical house in Palestine would be. So we have the front door and we have a set of steps. The steps would have been used by people and by animals. And go to the next one. And so this is how... A meager home, a very common person would have lived. They would have had a family living room, one room where everyone lived in. There was an area where animals could go, but they also, animals were in the family living room. Because if you look closely at those two little ovals, you'll see that says mangers. Now, that wasn't like the uh, things we put in a Christmas place that's wooden. The floor of this home was stone. And so what they would do is chip out out of the stone some indentations in the rock. And that's what they would use for feeding of their cattle. So the manger was inside the house. And so, again, I say it is very likely that Jesus was born in a house. Okay, so um, Jesus refers to this. In Matthew five fourteen, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to what? All who are in the house. Now, how can a candle give light to everyone in the house unless they lived in one big room. And that was what the people connected with. They understood that. That's what they went home to see. Well, if that's the case, if Jesus had a nice home to be in, then what about there was no room for them in the inn? Well, the word the Bible uses for inn uh, in the, the account in Luke um, is is not the word for an ancient type of hotel 
with rooms. We think of an inn as having multiple rooms and it's rented out. And so there was no vacancy. They had a sign out, sorry, no vacancy. So they, it wasn't available. That's not what that word means. The word that was used for that was pandokion, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing these Greek words properly, so just humor me. Uh, that word is used in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, um, where it says, So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, that's a pandokion, and took care of him. That was what we think of as a place with multiple rooms where you could lodge. However, Luke uses a different word in his account. He uses the word catalima, which is a guest room that was often attached to the house. And if you'll go to the next picture, the word uh, is used elsewhere in Luke. Uh, and, and here we can see there's the guest room. Some homes would have an attached uh, extension on the house that was a guest room. Go to the next picture for me. And this is probably what it would have looked like, a place where guests could come in, sleep, and they would have food for them. And so that was a very typical thing. Hospitality was a a very great virtue in Middle Eastern culture. And so if someone came uh, and needed a place to stay, they were offered a place to stay without question. Um, that was that was just the culture of their day. If we look at Luke 22, 10, uh, when Jesus is talking about finding a place for the Passover, he said, and he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? And that's the same word Luke uses for uh, the inn in the story. Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So this was a guest room. So what happened then? If we understand that that's the cultural background for the story, so then the story would have been something more like this. Mary and Joseph were seeking a place to stay, and they felt perfectly comfortable approaching an ordinary house in Bethlehem. They might have even known the inhabitants. They could have been kin. But even if they weren't, they knew they could find a place to stay. So they didn't get any gruff person telling them, go out there in the barn They had a home there. So the response when they knocked on the door was, I'm so sorry, our guest room is full. We already have someone there that's staying in it. However, you're welcome to come into our home and stay in our family living area. We don't know who that person was. We don't know the family. I'm sure they were blessed. I kind of think of it like the when the ark uh, was in the home and that home was blessed. I think it was kind of like when some momentous thing, such a holy event happened, I'm, I'm willing to bet that that family was blessed by it. So uh, that's kind of our mental image we want to have, that at least Jesus wasn't born in filth and squalor. I'm sure the animals were not housebroken, and I'm sure that they had uh, things to clean up. But one thing they did in these homes is the floor of that family living room 
was uh, slanted. It had a grade to it, so it started higher and it ran lower as you got to the mangers. And the reason for that is, as there was a mess in the morning, everything would be brushed down to the bottom of that or run down there, and then they could clean it out easily right out the front door. And so there was kind of a daily cleaning of that living space. So what about the shepherds? Okay, so if if this is true that uh, this manger was in an ordinary home, then what was the sign the angels told them about? So Luke 2, uh, verse 8, let's look at that. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. So that was a sign. But if we take the traditional scene of the shepherds going to a nasty barn, then we have a problem because we have some very callous, hard-hearted shepherds that would go to a place of squalor and see a baby being born on the floor of a barn or a cave. And they would not say to him, as would be normal in the Middle East, oh my, this is, we can't have this. You come home with me. My wife will show you a place and we'll prepare food. That would have been the normal response for the hospitality showed anyone, in particular if they, if they were in a place that was inhospitable or not up to the standard, standards of living. So now we have a little more um, uh, genteel, kind shepherds who would come into the house and they would see there that everything was in a normal, livable situation. However, and, and I've even taught this for years and in, in something that I was able to learn from this is we've understood that the sign was to the shepherds that the baby Jesus was laying in a manger, that that was something unusual to see. And so that was a sign. However, I think there's something greater there when we understand that maybe it wasn't so unusual for a family to lay their baby in the manger after all. Maybe because of the home setup, the way it was, that it was a very common thing that if there's an infant, laying them on the hay in a manger may have been a natural place to put them. Furthermore, if you put them over where everybody's at, could be a baby could be trampled by an animal or stepped on or whatever. So it was safer for the baby to be up where against that wall where the manger was for safety as well and quiet. So what was the important thing when the angel said this will be a sign? The sign was that when they were told this was the coming Messiah and that he was here and he made his entrance, they did not need to expect that they would go to a stately abode or a palace to find this Messiah. They said, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, just like in your house. This is the type of thing that the shepherds, when they returned home, would have seen. It was ordinary. It was common. And that's the point. 
I think that's the point of the Christmas message, that Jesus came in the flesh as a human being, as an ordinary baby. So he was an ordinary man, but he was extraordinary in his deity. We knew he was fully man and fully God. And so when the shepherds saw, they saw a baby that they was a scene they saw any time, any day in their homes, they could relate to this. This was the Messiah, a Messiah that could be approached, that they were familiar with. This was not something unusual. This was a Messiah who was not not afraid to be brought into the world in the presence of even lowly shepherds. So Jesus came to everyone everywhere, no matter what their status or station of life was. Jesus, in fact, his name was a common name for the time. Jesus was given the name that actually is the same one as Joshua. So Jesus was very common. That name was very common. Again, a common name, someone that the people could identify with and they could touch. When the name of God was pronounced by the Jews of the Old Testament, they were never allowed to speak his name out loud. They could say, Lord, or they would substitute Elohim. They would have substitutes for the Tetragrammaton, which is the four letters signifying the name of God. That name could not be spoken. But now we have a Savior who's come to earth with the name Jesus that everyone can speak. Everyone can speak it without fearing God, without fearing repercussion. Now we have a Messiah, a God who we can touch. And so that is the beauty of the Christmas message. Matthew, who was one of the two gospel writers who records the birth of Jesus, he sets out in his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Within within this genealogy, he mentions four women, two of which were Gentiles. So during this genealogy, Matthew is the only one who especially points out these added individuals into the genealogy of Jesus. One point Matthew was trying to make was that Jesus came for Jew and Gentile alike. And the only way he could interject to show that Jesus related to the Gentiles is that he even had Gentiles in his bloodline, and he named those specifically. There is a prophecy that Isaiah gives that Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This was an almost uh, word-for-word quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 where Isaiah mentions the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. So why was it called Galilee of the Gentiles? The the area that Jesus came to call home, Nazareth, Capernaum, those areas that were his hometowns that he was familiar with, 
In that area, it was a heavily infiltrated area in, in Israel with foreigners and those who were Gentiles. Heavy population. So much so that often the Jews of Jerusalem considered the region around Galilee as being corrupted. That you couldn't be really a pure Jew coming from there. You were always suspect. We see this in John 1:46, And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay? So the reason why, that was most likely a saying of the time where he was saying, the people are so suspect, they're corrupted, there's no good, we can't get any good thing coming out of Nazareth. So when they said that Jesus was out of Nazareth, immediately they begin to question that. However, it's a beautiful thing that when we realize that Jesus was not brought up in a bubble of Judaism, but he grew up elbow to elbow with Gentiles and those of other faiths. And he learned and knew as God and man to interact with those of different backgrounds and to be comfortable with that. That is a lesson to us that the gospel of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, was something that relates to all people of every background. Jesus came for every one of them. He can relate to the lowly shepherd. He can relate to the wealthy and educated wise men. Every one of them could approach the Messiah and and know that they could touch him. Jesus' birth also transcended political barriers. Jesus would, if he were born today in our culture, he would not have been what we call politically correct or woke today. That's because he did not have a political side. He did not come to side on politics. He came for his own reasons. And we see this in Matthew one twenty one, when the angel says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Now, if he, if the angel had paused there and he had a Jewish audience around him, their thought would have immediately been, this is the Messiah come. He has come to save his people from the oppression of Rome. No, that's not what the angel said. He's come to liberate us and to free us militarily. No, that's not what Jesus Jesus came to do. The angel said he will save his people, what? From their sins. Now, this was an oppressed people. It would have been a very easy cause to stand up and say, we need to liberate our people, our, our uh, all those that are oppressed by the empire of Rome. However, Jesus spoke to an oppressed people that many would have just felt needed comfort or encouragement. And he said to them, you need to be saved from your sins. Jesus did not hesitate to speak not to their political or their physical circumstances. He spoke to their spirits and to the spiritual needs that they had. He spoke to their hearts. Jesus had his own agenda. And we see that when it was As Jesus was announced, it was said, he is coming to take the throne of David, and he is to reign. Jesus was a king from the first day he was born, but his kingdom 
was not of this world. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish was one that Jesus said is in you. This is not something they could totally understand. And it took Jesus all of his ministry to try and teach this concept to them. That it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background, your cultural background, your political situation. It does not matter. I am here to bring you into and populate the kingdom of God. That is the first priority. The church through the years has sometimes had a a quandary on do we reach out and just address social issues And I believe the church has a obligation to stand up for biblical truth when we can. There is nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, in reaching the lost, we need to reach their souls. We need to see that they are redeemed. If doing, in order to do that, we have to feed them or clothe them or whatever we need to do, that is a good thing. But that is not the purpose of the gospel. So we should be reminded that Jesus came to redeem mankind and to welcome them into the kingdom of God. Let's stand together. I'm thankful that I'm part of a kingdom, that the king came as a lowly child that I can understand and I can relate to. I'm thankful that today the kingdom of God is going on, even when it seems like the world is being ripped apart Never forget that you're a citizen of another kingdom. It's not, it does not matter. I love America, but you know, ultimately, my allegiance is to another kingdom. It is not to this one. And so, each and every one of us have the opportunity to approach the kingdom of God. And the Messiah who came as a child is there waiting for us. I want to open the altar. Let's just, if you want to come together for a time of prayer, you're welcome to come forward. If you are not part of the kingdom of God, I invite you today. I echo what the angel said, that he has come to save you from your sins. I welcome you to give God thanks for where he has redeemed you. If you are a child of God and a part of the kingdom of God, that you have been redeemed. You know the kingdom. You understand what that's all about. Let's praise the Lord just for a little bit. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Down from his glory, ever Thank you for listening to this message. For more content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at the Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details.